Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Andrew. Uh, if I haven't met you, well, actually, it's still me either way, but um, it's good to be here this morning. Let me pray. Father, be with us and bless us this morning. Open your word to us by your spirit and grant us uh, to respond with faith to what we see of Jesus here. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark in church for a few weeks now, and we've seen a lot about Jesus already. But at the end of the passage before us this, this week, we get to one of the most explosive and powerful moments in the whole Gospel. It's a moment that brings into stunningly clear focus both who Jesus is and the way he challenges the existing status quo. I don't know if it stood out to you as we read it, uh, but let me draw your attention to it again. It's in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. It'd be very helpful to have a Bible before you as we go through this. Mark chapter 3, 1 to 6. Jesus, on a Sabbath, is in, a, is in the synagogue and his opponents are watching to see if he'll heal uh, this man. And he asks them a question, and when they're silent in response, Mark tells us in verse 5 that he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. It's not often, actually, that Mark slows down like this to show us in detail one of Jesus' reactions, what he was feeling. But here he does, and it is heavy. Jesus is furious. He's filled with rage, but also deeply upset, deeply grieved, disappointed, and horrified all at once. It's a shockingly kind of confronting insight into Jesus. What would it make him have that reaction? But the reaction of the opponents when Jesus heals the man straight after is equally amazing. Verse 6, Then the Pharisees, Mark tells us, went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, what is so shocking about this is not just that they decide to kill Jesus. I mean, that's shocking enough, right, that, that his healing leads them to want to organise a judicial murder. But what's amazing is also the people who are in on it. The Pharisees, we're told, team up with the Herodians. Now, we need to understand what that meant. Let, let me put it this way. These are two groups that would not normally have had anything to do with each other. They were completely at opposite ends of the religious and political spectrum. The Pharisees were the religious purists, those who wouldn't tolerate any compromise when it came to purity and obedience to the law. They were the fundamentalists. The Herodians were the sellouts, those who had taken, the, taken advantage of the political opportunities created by uh, King Herod and his successors. And King Herod was a bit of a moral and a religious disaster. So to put it in our context, this was like Fred Nile teaming up with Bob Brown. But there is this one thing they can agree on. They have to kill Jesus. What was it that led to this moment? What was it that brought this reaction of disgust from Jesus and that united the opposition in this way? We need to take the time to find out because it's a key to understanding who Jesus was and is. 
But it's also still important for us today because what we'll see is that Jesus completely overthrew everything people thought they knew about religion and he replaced it with himself. And this remains a powerful challenge for us today, especially to those of us who are a little bit religious. But be warned, I don't think the challenge stops with religion. In fact, Jesus' challenge applies to every worldview. And it is offensive enough to make people, maybe even people like us, want to kill him. Well, let's have a look at it. Leading up to this dramatic moment, we see Jesus involved in three interactions with the Pharisees. Um, in each case, he's, doing, he's just doing something different, something not quite right which the Pharisees don't understand, and they become increasingly frustrated and offended. First, in verses 13 to 17, the Pharisees are amazed by the fact that Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors. That is the kind of people that solid Bible-believing people didn't normally hang out with. By the way, tax collectors, nothing wrong with... Anybody work for the ATO? There's nothing wrong with that. But back then, they were the guys who who, who really got rich off kickbacks from the Romans. It was... It's like being in a bikey gang uh, and, and uh, just making money out of selling drugs and killing people. You know, it's bad all round. And they're who Jesus is hanging out with. And next in verses 18 to 20, the, the, the Pharisees are confused by the fact that he is not doing what other faithful people are doing. He's not fasting. Jesus looks decidedly undevout. And then thirdly, and most controversially, in verses 23 to 28, Jesus' disciples are seen to be explicitly breaking the rules about the Sabbath. They are picking grain, and that counts as work. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Okay, so what counts as work? Well, let's work it out, and we have all these rules about what does and doesn't count as work, and this is one of the things that counts as work, and they're doing it. What's going on, the Pharisees are thinking. Now, in each case, Jesus gives an explanation for what he's doing that revolves around himself. He's hanging out with the dodgies, he says, because he's like a doctor. And so he's more interested, frankly, in sick people. The disciples aren't fasting because he's like a bridegroom whose presence means that things are different to how they normally are. When he's there, things are different, like at a wedding. And the Sabbath rules are not binding because, in verses 27 and 28, he is the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath. Each of these titles, Doctor, Bridegroom, Son of Man, Lord of the Sabbath, they would have been kind of increasingly provocative for the Pharisees. Because each of them was a claim to have the kind of role actually that God was probably supposed to have. See, God in the Old Testament is the one who brings healing. God is the doctor. And God is also depicted in the Old Testament, like in our reading from Isaiah 54, God is depicted as Israel's husband. So when Jesus says he's, he's, he's like the bridegroom, what is he actually saying, the Pharisees are thinking? And then most obviously, really, God is the only one with the right to claim that he's Lord of the Sabbath. And if you know the story in Genesis, you know, the Sabbath is kind of God's thing. He made the world and then he rested and he said, you guys, 
Take notice of this. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And it, it's got to have been at the least provocative for them. But Jesus says, he is what makes a difference. And that's what lies behind the bit at the centre of our passage, which is really where I want to focus. Verses 21 and 22. I think it shows us what the heart of Jesus' clash with the Pharisees was about. It's where he talks about no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Right? The idea is you sew an unshrunk piece of cloth on it, it rips it. Jesus obviously knew a bit about sewing. Isn't that interesting? Same with the wine. You don't put the wine in an old wineskin that's already been uh, stretched because then it will just burst. You need a new wineskin. His point here in what he says about the patch and the wine and so on is that, is that what he means is not something that they, the Pharisees can just add on or incorporate into their way of looking at the world their take on life and God, their worldview. Jesus is not like a patch they can add to, sew onto their system. He's bigger than that, and he will only break their system. He's like new wine, that if you try to fit it into pre-stretched wineskins, that is your existing framework of thinking, it won't hold it. Jesus is saying that he completely changes the game. His presence introduces a whole new situation. He's like the doctor, come to heal the sick. He's the bridegroom, come for the wedding. He's the son of man, come as the Lord. He is, he he says, something completely, radically new, which means that all their assumptions and ideas need to be scrapped and rethought. That's why Jesus was so offensive to the Pharisees. Because what he challenged was not just some details about rule-keeping, but their whole system. He told them they had to rethink their whole worldview. He challenged their confidence about how things worked. The most confronting thing that Jesus did here was not to eat in a time of fasting or pick grain on the Sabbath. It was to have an answer to their questions. Because that implied that they didn't actually know what they were talking about and they thought they did. And this was offensive because what was at stake most deeply here was their sense of self-assurance. What Jesus challenged, you see, was their pride. Legalism, like the kind the Pharisees display here where they kind of work out what the exact rules are and just want to do it, that can seem like it has a bit of humility to it, can't it? I just want to know what I have to do so that I can obey. I don't want to, you know, it's somebody else's responsibility. I'm just going to obey the rules. What are the requirements? That kind of attitude can seem to be a kind of humility. But that kind of humility, the, the humility of legalism, is not a real humility. Because underneath it is a need to be in control. A need to control my own destiny by knowing how things work. Do you know what I mean? Think about someone who wants to keep the Sabbath, right? That's a rule. And so takes the Pharisees' line of asking, what does this look like exactly? What counts as work and what doesn't? What's going on here is really a desire to be in control, a desire to be your own saviour, to be able to do it yourself. 
That's not humility, that's pride. And it was pride that was at stake in the issues of fasting and associating with sinners as well because what these were really about was a desire for the Pharisees to be acknowledged, respected and affirmed as the good ones, the righteous ones. Jesus' actions were so difficult for the Pharisees because they made it look like they didn't really know what they were doing, that they were on the wrong track. I can imagine them almost feeling like it would have been better if Jesus had taken them on directly because at least that's taking them seriously. But instead, he just kind of passes them by as if, oh, yeah, you're off doing your thing. It's a bit, you guys, you'll get it together, maybe, you know? What Jesus challenges, you see, is human pride and self-assurance, the kind of attitude that thinks, I've got it all under control. I've got it all worked out. That's why Jesus was and is popular among those who are not as confident, who don't think they've got it all worked out, who are aware of their failures and weaknesses. Because the one thing he makes completely impossible is self-assurance. And that's also why this passage is more than just a challenge to people who are religious, like the Pharisees. It's not less than that, of course. There is a powerful challenge here for people who feel sure of themselves, who feel confident because of their religious activity. And people who go to church regularly, probably like many of us, need to hear it because churches can very easily become places that are weirdly obsessed with rules and and places where they're kind of creepily anxious about people being different. I've talked to lots of people uh, who grew up among churches or maybe went to Christian schools. I wonder if you have had this experience. And who kind of only ever got rules. And it turned them off for life. And Jesus, I think, would have had no more sympathy for that than he had for the Pharisees. Being really obsessed with religion can be a very effective route to hell. But that's because religion can be about pride. And pride can take many other forms as well. We're not a very religious culture anymore on the whole. I'm thrilled to see you at church. It's great to have you. But our culture is not massively religious. And yet we are a culture with a very generous dose of moral superiority. In the media, especially in opinion pieces and on talkback radio and so on, there is this obvious tone of self-assurance about moral things. I don't just mean people like Alan Jones, although he counts. I love personally listening to Adam Spencer and Richard Glover on 702. Anybody else listen to them? I think this is going to go better in the morning than in the evening. Anyway. And I really like them. I think they're great in many ways. But I think they also often channel this cultural sense of self-assurance about moral questions. You know, they will discuss the most difficult and terrifying issues. Euthanasia, war, refugee policy, and sometimes you kind of get the impression that most people think the answers are pretty obvious, pretty simple. The same thing lies behind the way people are so ready these days to be filled with righteous indignation 
Righteous anger is anger you feel when you're convinced that there is an absolutely clear-cut injustice being done. And people will feel like this about anything and everything these days. It's the bread and butter of a show like Q&A. We are so quick to make judgments. And this only shows, I think, that many of us, the elites at least in our culture, are absolutely sure they know what they're talking about. Absolutely confident that they know how things work. And that's why Jesus is just as much a challenge to our age as he was to his. Because Jesus challenges any and every form of pride. He confronts us as something radically new, unexpected, who we cannot fit into our system, however hard we try, who forces us either to rebuild from the ground up or refuse him completely. You've always got to be careful about those books. You know the books that try to incorporate Jesus' teaching alongside their own ideas and the teachings of lots of other figures? Ever come across them? Spirituality books often. Some religions do the same. The Baha'i faith, for instance, Jesus is one among many gurus. But Jesus will not allow that because you can't fit Jesus into your pre-existing worldview. You can't patch Jesus on and keep everything else intact. He wants to run the show. He wants to rebuild the house from the inside out. He is like new wine and new wine needs new wineskins. This means you too. Jesus does not want to just teach you some things, brothers and sisters. He doesn't want to just have an advisory role in your life. He doesn't just want to add some new activities to your schedule. He wants to own it. He wants to be the centre, the thing that drives your whole take on how life works. He wants to remake your world from the inside out. New wine needs new wineskins. Have you let him have that place? Have you let Jesus take control of your worldview and start to rebuild it from the ground up? Friends, I think this is a really challenging thing to do because, of course, we all have ideas and opinions and views that are like treasured possessions to us that we are very unwilling to let go of. We have views that we've learned from our families and friends and decided on over time. We have positions we've arrived at in one way or another. The older, I, the older we are, I suspect, the, the more that's true. And we don't give them up easily. Ask yourself how you would feel if Jesus were to call in question some of the ways of operating and thinking that have been most central to your life for a long time now. What if Jesus were to seriously challenge your assumptions, for example, about the priority you give to your family, to your parents, to your children? In fact, as we'll see next week in Mark, that's exactly what Jesus does. 
Or what about your career? What if Jesus were to radically question your self-understanding about your career and, and your sense of contribution in the world? The one you've grown up with and absorbed from people around you? Or what about money? How resistant would you be to the idea that Jesus might call you to think completely differently about the way you use the money you have? It's perfectly reasonable, of course, for us to have ideas and things we're committed to. We have to. That's the only way to kind of operate. But we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful our ideas are not untouchable. Sometimes when I talk to people, it does feel like they have certain views which are untouchable, that are just not open to discussion, that you're not allowed to question them about. Sometimes it's about things I mentioned. Other times it's about politics or sex. They have these areas that, that are not open for negotiation. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous because if our ideas are unchallengeable, then they will be the thing that we're worshipping, not Jesus. Because Jesus then will be just a teacher among many. But he won't be that. Jesus won't be just important to us. He's not interested in fitting in alongside our other commitments. He will have it all, or he won't have us at all. We need to be ready, friends, at least in principle, to allow Jesus to challenge everything. That's what he asks of us. New wineskins. All our treasured commitments, all our settled opinions, they have to be surrendered to him so that he can rebuild from the ground up. Some of, some of them may well remain, but they may well remain only in a changed form. A bit like if somebody rebuilt your house but incorporated lots of the old materials so that some of the wood from the door frames got used in the flooring and the windows ended up in different positions. Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees, you see, is a challenge to us also. New wine needs new wineskins. He asks us to surrender our worldview, our understanding of how life works and what matters, to surrender it to him and let him give us a new one. And that is a big ask, isn't it? So let me finish just by drawing your attention again to that last interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, the one we began with, because I think it gives us a powerful encouragement to do it, to hand everything over to Jesus. Very quickly, let me paint the picture. Again, Jesus is in the synagogue, but now he's well known and all eyes are on him, including those of his opponents. But they're not curious anymore. They've made up their minds and now they just want to trap him. They just want to be able to accuse him. And there is this man there, a poor, pathetic man with a shriveled up hand. It's an ailment that's dogged him all his life, that has lost him friends, made him an object of ridicule, maybe meant he's missed out on marriage. And Jesus sees him, 
calls him forward, and then asks a question right in front of his opponents. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Now his opponents, I'm sure, didn't answer because they thought it wasn't a fair question. You can't give us that either or, Jesus. That's not the way the rules work. We refuse to debate on these terms. But right there we see everything that's wrong with their system. They wouldn't answer that. They wouldn't even say it's lawful to do good, to to save life. Their silence shows how lost and pathetic they are. They can't even see truth and beauty when it's handed to them on a plate. Jesus, though, can see it perfectly which is why he's so disgusted, angry and deeply distressed, it says. And he will not have a bar of it. Stretch out your hand, he says to the man, and the man's hand is completely restored. A wonderful miracle. And that act of giving life leads the Pharisees to plan a murder. The Pharisees, though, they show us more than just their own depravity. They show us the darkness that lies in all human pride when it is confronted by Jesus' demand. Jesus will change everything. And if we will not allow that, we too, whether we are religious or not, we will be capable of just the same blindness and wickedness we see here. So let me finish by urging you to give Jesus the place he asks for, the centre, to surrender yourself completely to him. Because with Jesus, it's neither that the religious are in and the pagans are out, nor that the progressives are in and the conservatives are out, It's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. So don't hold on to your pride. Jesus is so obviously truer, better, more beautiful. Give him the keys. Let him rebuild your world.